Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Dedicated is expanding. We are now filming our segments. We are doing some slick new video inside the Sirius XM studios. So if you want to see me fixing the cocktails and having conversations with our awesome guests, go to YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or the Sirius XM app, and you can see us in studio. Welcome to Dedicated with Doug Brunt. You have just gained access to an exclusive insider's look at the lives and works of some of your favorite authors and hear conversations with the world's greatest writers as they discuss their writing lifestyle, creative process, latest work, and behind-the-scenes revelations. Welcome to Dedicated. I'm your host, Doug Brunt. Today, we're talking with Eduardo Ballerini. In addition to an impressive list of films and TV shows that he starred in, including many of my favorites like Boardwalk Empire, The Sopranos, 24, Romeo Must Die, he's also done the audiobook narration for many of my favorite books, including The Swerve by Stephen Greenblatt, Beautiful Ruins by Jess Walter, and The Lincoln Highway by Amor Tolles. After narrating the Hebrew Bible, New York Magazine called Eduardo the voice of God. So if you're curious to know what that sounds like... Stay tuned just a few more seconds. Eduardo, welcome to the show. Thank you. I feel like I have to have some really impressive first uh, entry into this, the voice of God. Right, right. Yeah, no pressure. Just no do pressure, your best no God pressure. imitation. I, I actually think you've probably got the, the closer to the voice of God of the two of us. <laughs> well, thank you. I feel like that headline was a little misleading in that it was really about having recorded the Bible as opposed to like sounding like, sounding like James God. Earl Jones or whatever, you know. <laughs> so. Well, everyone's got their own interpretation exactly. of what it might, exactly. might sound like. Right. Today, we are had, so you and I have had this booked for forever, and I've been yes. looking forward to this martini, which mm. we're going to have today, Vodka Martini Three Olives. Yes, and uh, nice and simple, because the martini has gotten out of control, as far as I can tell. There was a great piece by uh, Sam Sifton in the New York Times about the martini about five, six months ago. Now, everybody has just gotten crazy with what they put in to the martini. Right. And it's the, it's the olive that's always the killer, right? Because people feel like they've got to dress it up somehow and do something with the olive. Mm-hmm. So you'll find like... Cheese, that sort of thing? Cheese, yeah. The cheese, or <laughs> I, I feel like I had one that had like a walnut in the middle of it. And I'm like, what, oh. what is this? Just, I just want a martini. Dry? Uh, yeah. yeah. Kind of dry, just a little bit of that? Just a little bit of that, yeah. Okay. And then if it's possible to dirty it up with some of the brine from the... Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. I, I do. Yeah. Like the dirty martini, I agree with that. Although I have to say the the blue cheese olive you that like can tempt me over sometimes. Really? Yeah. Okay, I, I can see where this episode is going then. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you, and I, I don't normally uh, drink this early in the day, so I'm really looking forward to this as well. Be able to see where the day takes us. <laughs> go. All right, that's right, three olives down in yeah. each. 
The three olives is key because you need enough to sort of have a third of the drink, eat an olive, have a third of the drink, eat an olive. You know, some places they give you one olive, and I really feel like I'm getting gypped when that happens. Yeah. We have a restaurant now where we often go, my, my wife and I, and she also gets the dirty martini. Yeah. And they now they do two of the poker stick. What do you mm. call those things that are in the shape of a mini sword? The little you know? mini sword, yeah, in case a small buccaneer walks by. Yeah, so she ends up with like six olives in there, and it's like an appetizer. Right. And then, you know, olives, of course, they they could have big olives, small olives, the whole thing. It's, it's There's a real art to it. So these look good. Thank you. All right, here we go. I mean, as a, as someone who appreciates audio, yeah, this is it. This is the sound design happening. Right, the, sound the ice. The martini is the. That's the best sounding drink to make. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, that is very nice. Thank mm. you. Oh, that is good. All right. Well, welcome. This is Thank great. You. Thank you. I feel like, you know, I, I have to say, like, I know you mostly interview writers, mm -hmm. and I feel uh, very honored to, to be on this show because, you know, I'm not a writer by trade, but I work sort of writer adjacent. Well, you've been, you've been directing, acting, I've been some writing, things, yeah. and, and uh, a lot of audio work. And as we were just saying before we got started, the audiobook yeah. market has gone crazy. It I has. mean, I, everyone's at, maybe it's a third, a third, a third between hardcover. It's hard audio, to know. Uh, it's certainly the, the one thing that's uh, without question true is that audiobook sales are rising. Mm -hmm. uh, they just keep growing every year. Uh, and the numbers as compared to the hardcover of the ebook, I don't know exactly. It depends title to title. Many, many years ago, uh, Jess Walter, who you've had on the show, mm -hmm. um, my career kind of in audio really got started when I did Beautiful Ruins. And what happened, and it, was everybody, it took everybody by surprise, but the audiobook actually outsold the hardcover. And this wow. was... 2012 and i think people were like whoa 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 wait a minute you can actually make money <laughs> with the audiobook too audio is gonna sell yeah exactly and i think yeah. that because you know i wasn't well known in jess it was his first bestseller so yeah. he wasn't particularly well known that you know had a great success and beyond the success that he had it was still the audio was selling really well that's great. Yeah, I love Jess. He is such a nice guy, and yeah. I loved that book. Beautiful yeah. Ruins is yeah. it. I'm is forever awesome grateful to, to Jess, because we then collaborated on a piece. Mm -hmm. We did an audible uh, original, The Angel of Rome, uh, which later became... Oh, yeah, the, the collection of short stories? Right. Yeah. So the title story is uh, a piece that he and I collaborated on. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah. that was a really fun experience. He's a wonderful guy. Oh. So you grew up in a very creative, artistic family. I, I read your father, Luigi, was a, a writer, poet, teacher. Your mother was a photographer. Yeah, I grew up on 17th Street uh, and Fifth Avenue uh, back when it was very different. Down by uh, Washington Square Park. Uh, so. Yeah, a little further up. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, and uh, we grew up, I grew up in a loft, and uh, there were always writers and poets and artists around. And that area... Long, skinny, brown cigarettes. And yeah, I wasn't smoking. Jackets then. I was, with I was, elbow you know, patches. Yeah, seven years old. But um, no, but I remember like I'd walk down the street with my mom, and she'd be like, she'd elbow me and be like, that, that, was, that was Mick Jagger. Mick no Jagger way. just walked by, and I'd be like, Who, who's Mick Jagger? Um, <laughs> and then uh, we had friends who lived at uh, Wait, 30... Wait, so Mick Jagger came to your house and no, talked no, about... No, 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 Oh, just in the he neighborhood. He was just in the neighborhood, okay. yeah. Although, I, I have a funny story about, not Mick Jagger, but somebody else. Uh, around the corner on Union Square East was Andy Warhol's factory, and we had some very good friends who lived like two floors above. Mm -hmm. And so we would go over there, and so I'd, you know, I'd be riding up in the elevator with Lou Reed and all these people. I didn't know who they were. 
You know, but they were just because Max's Kansas City, this bar was down there. That was where they all hung out. Uh, No, the celebrity funny story. New York City. Oh, no. It's like they're they're all among us. They're all right here on a they're a subway right away, sometimes on the same subway. Yeah. I think back then it was even like a little more sort of relaxed in that they were just really kind of walking around. Um, Paparazzi everywhere. So the funny celebrity story about 17th Street where I grew up was that one day I come home and my mother says, uh, Al Pacino is in the bathroom. And I'm like, who's Al Pacino, right? And I'm like, what does this mean? And so I go into our bathroom, and there was this man, sort of long, shaggy hair, you know, not that what tall. What year was this? We're talking 78, 79, maybe. I was a little kid. Uh, and, you know, then he leaves. And it was one of those lofts where the elevator just, you know, opens onto the loft. Yeah. He gets in the elevator, goes down, and I'm like, well, what was he doing? And evidently, he was thinking about buying the loft either upstairs or downstairs, and wanted to check out the plumbing or something. And so he was like <laughs> looking around behind our toilet and stuff. And I'm like. So he wasn't right. using the toilet. He literally was just no, like. He was just checking it out. Really so, checking out Yeah. Plumbing. So I hope someday to meet Al Pacino so I can tell him this story. And he'll, that, of course, not remember it. That's so, funny. Yeah. Well, you soon came to know these sorts of people because you, you sort of got into the business. Before all that, though, you were Dealfield Academy. You sort of educated both in the U.S., and overseas. Yeah. Deerfield here, Wesleyan, but you also went and studied over in Rome. I did. So my childhood was back and forth between Italy and uh, the United States. I'd do my school year here, then I'd spend the summer in Italy. Mm-hmm. Both my parents are academics, as you noted, so they had the summer off. So we would go to Milan. Uh, and then after graduating uh, from Wesleyan, I got a scholarship <laughs> to study Latin uh, with a priest in the Vatican true story, uh, which is the story in uh, The Angel of Rome with Jess Walter. It's about this kid who gets a scholarship. So it's based on my life. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, And it was a disastrous summer. Um, I was lonely. I was broke. I was homesick. I was all that stuff. studying Latin. I was studying Latin. I was like, how the fuck am I studying (laughs) Latin? This is good. Um, Yeah, nothing is right about this. Um, And I quit. I quit this class and I joined a theater company. It was expats. It was a bunch of Americans in Rome. Shakespeare? I, like Shakespeare traveling no, they were, group or they anything? No, they were just screwing around. Okay. I, you know, I went over to this place and there was just a bunch of people kind of hanging around on the stage. They were doing some scene study. They were just, I think it was just a way for people to hang out, quite mm-hmm. frankly. So I joined them for a little while. Uh, then I came back to the United States. Had and, you done any acting prior to this? No. Oh, sorry. I'm going to backtrack. I did some as a kid. Uh, I was uh, in a, a little company uh, called the Giulari di Piazza, which is like the gestures of the square. Mm-hmm. And they were a um, commedia dell'arte troupe, right? So it's like the big instruments, the fancy pants, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and I joined them when I was a kid. Uh, and then I did a little bit of acting on stage. I was in a, a two-hander at Theater for the New City. I think I had a screen test for a, an NBC show when I was like 10 or 11. My mother said, this is ridiculous. Get him out of here. Um, but so then I didn't do anything. Then I, I went all the way through college. A f- friend of mine said, would you be in my short film? But that was about it. Mm-hmm. So I got to Rome. I was, as I said, you know, broke and bored and lonely. And I joined this theater company, came back to New York, started studying at HB Studios, Lee Strasberg, hung out at the Actors Studio. And it just kind of rolled from there. Yeah. So the, the troupe in Italy, though, was that 
around one stage. I mean, it, it sounds like a traveling troupe. In my mind, I picture like the caravan going right. down the road and right, then right, you right. guys pop into a new Gypsies. town. And do your... right, yeah. right. Yeah. It wasn't that. No, it wasn't that. It was just some people <laughs> who had rented a little space and they were just hanging out for a bit. Uh, uh, I didn't last long Trying to meet there. girls, having some drinks, that Pretty sort of much. Yeah. You, yeah, you got it. Yeah. So you get back to New York, though, and in 95, you have your first kind of TV role. If I have this correct, you yep. were on Law & Order. Correct. As are many up-and-comers, one of the first roles. Yeah, I think show. I think it's almost, if you're a New York actor, certainly back then, it was sort of required that you be in an episode of Law & Order. Yeah. Um, that was my first job. I got my SAG card, uh, and I played an autistic kid, which is a strange first role. Uh, I, I think everybody, when they jump into the acting thing, they're like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm leading material, right? I, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I'm decent looking. I've got, you know, I've got a nice presence. They think they're going to get these sort of leading roles. And my first role was this autistic kid. And I was like, okay, it's going to be that kind of a career. Um, but it, it was great. Um, I had a wonderful time with it. Uh, and, uh, I that saw was like it. That, 95 was like the height of Law and Order, right? Yeah, I think it must've been like season Sam five. Waterston yeah, Sam Waterston. Yeah. Guy, yeah. Um, Jill Hennessy. Uh, I think some of the original people were gone. Uh, Jerry Orbach was still there. Uh, he was great. But I watched it and, uh, I had a, a glass of wine or two to watch this with some people. And then I went home. I was at somebody else's house. I went home and threw up. I just, I, I, just this nerves. Yeah. Just it? nerves, yeah. just nerves. I like, I hated seeing myself on a screen like that, which again is a sort of strange thing for an actor. But, uh, to this day, I have a hard time watching things that I'm in. I'm not sure I've seen all my stuff in the Sopranos. Actually, That's funny. I mean, yeah. writers are the same way. I think often they, they don't go back and read their early work. Right. I never go back and read my books. I haven't. That'd be a little weird, right? You're just like <laughs> hanging out in the summer. You're like, I'm going to read my well, you book. You want to edit it? And you're like, oh man, I, <laughs> right. I, you know, it's too late, of course, to edit anything. It's already out there. Yeah. I just, I'm not sure it would make me feel. Yeah, but whenever uh, a director yeah. says like, oh, you know, I want you to see the playback on the monitor, I'm like, no, no, please, just, just tell me what you need. I don't want to see it. I get very self conscious about it. That's funny. So the first audio book was Machiavelli, The yeah. Prince, yeah. 2007. Wow. So that, then you broke that, into, that uh, yeah. <laughs> Because, as you said, Beautiful, Beautiful Ruins wasn't until 2012. So you've right. been doing it for a bit of time before think, the sort of big one with Beautiful Ruins. Yeah. I think, to be fair, like the, uh, between 2000 and 2012, I probably only did like six or seven books. Mm -hmm. As you probably know, you know, audiobooks, you can do them fairly quickly. I mean, it takes a few days. Well, back in those days, would you also have to buy the, the CD or something? Like, yeah, you know, that's a, a good question. You weren't so even streaming these things. 2007 was when Audible launched, I think. Amazon's Audible, yeah. although it probably wasn't Amazon then, right? It was a separate thing. It, yeah, or... it was a separate thing. Yeah. So that was sort of the, and it was when the iPhone came out and it sort of changed everything. Yeah. Um, but it was very new. Uh, and a woman in LA wanted to start an audiobook publishing company, asked me if I would like to do one. And mm -hmm. I was like, sure. You know, I don't know what this is. How much will you pay me? Yeah, well, zero. Uh, but <laughs> the, uh, the deal was you just have to pick something that's public domain. Because she didn't want to uh -huh. buy the rights to anything. And so I was like, all right. So I found a public domain translation of Machiavelli's The Prince. It's a fairly slim volume. Uh, and so we recorded it in like a day or two. Uh, and I was like, oh, yeah, this is interesting. Okay, I like this. Where did you? So back in those days, not everyone had a home studio. So where, where did you actually do the recording? Literally in her closet. Oh, <laughs> she did have a home studio. Uh, no, it was, it was her home studio. It was in her closet. Uh -huh. uh, and she was running wires, you know, through into the closet. There was no air or anything. You'd have to come out every 15 minutes because you'd be sweating. 
Um, but I was like, I was intrigued by it. I was like, you know, I have a literary background, an academic background, and then it sort of merged with the acting. And I was like, all right, so. Yeah. And then audiobooks, it was sort of right timing, right? It's like I kind of jumped into it just as the industry was getting big. Mm-hmm. And there was this kind of need for actors uh, to come in and do this. And uh, it was a great sort of side thing at the time. Uh, I didn't really think much of it. I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to become an audiobook narrator. This is where I'm going to make my mark. Um, You've never taken a course in it, obviously. So I you don't even know if there was a course. Own, yeah, yeah. Right? it wasn't a thing. Yeah, it wasn't a thing. But, but now, well, we'll get to that later. Yeah. But you now, so listeners know, a little foreshadowing here, you will soon be teaching a course. Yes. In this. Um, so, uh, and it just, again, it was sort of right timing. Uh, and, you know, I, I met some people at Audible. They, they brought me out. I, would, I did a couple of titles for them. And then Beautiful Ruins happened. And that happened because the woman who was producing it, Karen Jakonsky, she was at Harper Audio at the time. She's at Penguin Random House now. She uh, was sort of a fan of mine from a film called Dinner Rush, which I did with Danny Aiello around 2000, 2001. Uh, and so she knew me as somebody just starting with audiobooks, but she also knew I, I spoke Italian. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Beautiful Ruins takes place in sort of three different settings, uh, four actually. Um, and so I was sort of good casting for it. It's like I knew Hollywood, I knew Italy. Yeah, one, like, one of the main settings is the Italian coast there, yeah. so you could do the Italian. Right. And bits. you know, and I'd lived in LA for long enough to know what those you know producers were like and all yeah. those development people were like. And so she was like, "All right, let me let me ask him to do it." And then it just took off, and from there, it just kind of it went. Yeah, uh, it, it, that was one of those books that really caught fire. It was such, such a charming, charming book. Yeah. Well, let's speaking of all that, let's talk about your process then. We'll focus. I mean, I, I know the acting folds in. We'll focus right. mainly on the. Your audio narration here, because most of the listeners of the show are, yeah. are avid readers and audio right. consumers. So maybe to start, just talk about the crossovers between acting and audiobook narration in terms of character and how you deliver yeah. it. I think, you know, to, to uh, be a, a narrator, uh, it, it helps to be an actor, of course, uh, because you are going to be doing multiple characters. It helps to be a character actor. Uh, but you also, I really think, have to have a kind of literary side uh, to you. You really mm-hmm. have to love books because you're going to be spending a lot of time with them uh, in a small space, either by yourself or maybe with a director. And you really have to get into this kind of zen-like thing with a book and you kind of have to you know, commune with the book. Uh, mm-hmm. And so it is this blending of worlds. It's publishing. It's entertainment. It's sort of right in between the two. Uh, and I feel fortunate in that, like, as I said, like, you know, all these things I was working on my whole life, I didn't realize it, but they were very much pointing towards audiobooks, mm-hmm. the literary background, the academic background, the acting, a lot of character work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I speak Italian, as I said, I, I feel very comfortable with accents and languages and all that kind of stuff, which you get called on to do in books. And so it just felt like the right thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, lo and behold, it's been working out. How about a situation where we'll pause while you take a sip of oh, your yes, martini, please, which yeah. I'm also going to do. Yeah. But how about books like, for example, Lincoln Highway, yeah. where there was an ensemble of readers. Mm-hmm. There are a number of characters in that book. Some are kids, some are yeah. adults, and there was more than one reader. How does that work both on the artistic side as well as just programmatically? How do you guys cobble it all together? And are you hearing what other readers are saying so you're cued in the right way? Or how, how do you stitch it all together? Yeah, you're you're gener- you're typically not. And the way they usually break it up is by chapter. So you're not uh, doing like dialogue opposite somebody. That does happen from time to time or like a radio play. Mm-hmm. Uh, typically when they break up, the Lincoln Highway is a great example. 
Um, I did the bulk of it, probably about 80% of the book. And then there were sections which were told from the perspective of other characters. Right. Uh, one was a woman uh, and one was a black man. So you could hear a character's voice read by different people, depending on who was yeah. your sort of omniscient narrator of that chapter. Right. Okay. Uh, and so they would, uh, Marin Ireland and Dion Graham, they recorded their chapters separately. Mm -hmm. uh, so we weren't overlapping in that sense. And then, uh, you know, the, the magic of editing, they, they stitched it all together. That's a great book, too, I have to say. Oh, Amor's, Amor's amazing. Yeah. What, uh, what about situations, are there ever situations where you are going back and forth in there dialogue are. where you are, you know, Bob and someone else is Charlotte or uh -huh. whatever? And yeah. How does that work? You, you need to be in the room. Okay. Uh, and in fact, I had a... a an example of that recently with Cormac McCarthy's uh, Stella Maris, which was uh, McCarthy's last work. It's a novel, but it's really a play. It's a two-character play. And mm -hmm. uh, this woman, Julia Whalen, uh, and I were asked to, to narrate it. She plays this young math genius. I'm her therapist. And we initially were on a Zoom call with our producer from Penguin Random House. And, you know, we're all looking at each other, these little boxes. Because Julia was in L.A., I was in New York. And I said, well, this is not going to work. Like, we got to be in the room. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I went out to L.A. Uh, we spent three days uh, recording it. And it was amazing. It was just like sort of you and me sitting here right now and sort mm -hmm. of reading it that way. There have been occasions where dialogue gets stitched together. I'm, I'm going to go on record and say I'm not a fan of that. <laughs> like, where you record yours separately because you don't know what you're reacting to. Right. right? That seems weird to me. Like, I, I watch these strange. Disney animated films or something, and they're all having conversations. Yeah. There's lots of action. And mm -hmm. I don't know. The, the way you finish a word or right. sentence could what, should inform someone else right. starts their next one. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so I am not a fan of that. I really think that at that point, if you can't get in the room, I realize there's a cost to getting people in the same room. Mm -hmm. You can at least link them up on Source Connect or Zoom or something. How, how does Disney for well, Pixar films or whatever, when they do these animated films, how do they do it? That's a great question. I would imagine they have enormous scheduling problems because <laughs> they have all these celebrities that they're dealing with, right? right? Um, they probably have uh, somebody come in and uh, serve as a reader if they can't get people in the room together. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, animation is a little different because I think what happens there is that they're animating to the voice. So they do the recording first and then they animate off of that, meaning so that, you know, if the, the animated character has an expression, it kind of matches what the actor did with it. Oh, and not I did realize that not the, the other voice way can't, comes before. I always thought That's they have to sort of... my understanding. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've done very little animation, uh, but the one I did was like that. Okay. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. 
It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Can you take us through a day or a week of, of a life? You know, how, how much do you do? How many pages or how many minutes do you do at a stint? And right. I don't know. What does your, what does your day look like? Uh, well, my day looks like this. I have two small children. Well, they're not that small anymore. They're 11 and 8. So the, the morning starts with them, getting them bundled up and off to school. Uh, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> then I usually, if I'm recording, then I usually get down into my studio around 8.30. Um, I can work till about Two two thirty on and off. Obviously, I take breaks. Uh, that's about it for me. Uh, mm-hmm. And then the rest of my day is spent with my kids. Uh, I turn into a chauffeur, and I'm taking them around to their various the ac- yeah their various yeah. activities, which is great. I feel so lucky that I have a job which can allow for that. Um, sometimes I go back uh, and do a little work at night. Um, I will say that the the longer I've been doing this, the the shorter I want my sessions to be. When I first started, I could just go. I'd be like, yeah, let's start at eight and go till four. And let, yeah, mm-hmm. Let's stop for five minutes and keep going. Come on, man. Let's go. Now I'm like, yeah, you know what? Let, let's slow down here. Mm-hmm. Um, it's taxing. Yeah. It, do you read it once first and then go back yeah. and do the narrative? Like you sort of, so you know, all the ups I, and downs, it, it, you're able to anticipate where things are going. Yeah. Different people have different approaches. Mine is to skim the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to actually know everything. Mm-hmm. I want to know the writer's voice. I want to know the story. Obviously, I want to know the major characters, but I don't want to read it to death before I've gotten into the to the booth because I do want to allow for a certain discovery. Mm-hmm. In part, I'm the the voice. I'm the narrator, but I'm also kind of like the reader, right? I'm sort of with you, the listener, the reader, and so I feel like we need to kind of go on this journey together. Mm-hmm. And so there has to be a certain amount of space to discover things as we go, uh, and I think that's very important. Some people read the book three times they'll highlight every character in different colors and they'll, you know they'll make choices on these passages and i i don't do that mm-hmm. uh, i find it actually counterproductive to do that um but that's that's basically uh it uh i do like to be in touch with the the writers as much as possible mm-hmm. i mean i love it when i get a book from an author that i've already worked with i do a lot of books by andre asiman he's a friend uh and it's great to like go out to dinner with him and talk about the book before i record yeah. it um, I'm about to do some events with uh, Paul Harding, who wrote this other Eden, which was uh, mm-hmm. winning all these awards or shortlisted for all these awards. And that, I have to say, has been one of the coolest aspects of this, is to meet writers and spend time with writers. Yeah. Uh, and so I try to get them involved in the process. Like, is there anything I need to know? Is there anything about what, What's been book? some instructive feedback that you've gotten from a writer? Or You know, mostly, I have to say, they've, they've said, do what you do. I trust you. Uh, there was, I think, there was one occasion with one of Andre's books where the character of his mother appears, uh, and the mother uh, uh, is deaf, and so she speaks in a very certain way. And so I did want to talk to him about how to handle that. Mm-hmm. One of the dangers in audio is uh, you never want to be cartoonish, right? You really want to honor the text, and you want to want to honor the authenticity of the characters. And so if you have a character who, you know, has a disability or something, you just you have to be very careful there mm-hmm. because yeah. it can be very off-putting to a listener. 
if you're suddenly, you know, oh, he's sounding like a, a deaf person, like he's shouting through my ears, yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? Uh, so we talked about that. Um, but for the most part, I have to say, uh, they've just said, you know, you, you do what you do. Well, I, I actually had in my notes to ask you a question connected to what you were just saying there, which is when you have to stretch beyond your normal, whether it's across gender, you know, if you're, if sure. you're playing a female, you're playing, a, you know, a, a young kid or yeah. an old person, like how do you yeah. find sort of a nuanced way to do that? That's a great question. And honestly, it's changed a lot in the last few years for reasons that I'm sure you can understand. You know, we've culturally changed in a lot of ways. And so we're very much more aware of stereotypes and stereotyping. Mm -hmm. uh, there's been a greater uh, effort on the casting side of things. And I, this is all good to make sure that the right person is reading the right book. Uh, and when you do get to a character, you, don't, you know, when you're the narrator and you're doing all the characters, you have to read the Asian person, you have to read the black person, you have to read the white person, you have to read the man, you have to read the woman, you have to read everybody, right? You don't, mm -hmm. can't just say, oh, let's, let's cast this and have somebody come in. Uh, and I think in recent years, people have kind of taken their foot off the gas a little bit as far as like the characterizations go, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I think it's a lighter touch now than it used to be. Uh, it certainly is with me. Um, that, you know, there's a, there's an area where I feel like, uh, it's sort of safe. Like if it's an Italian character, like I'm half Italian, right. I can kind of go for it there, mm -hmm. you know, uh, French, Spanish, you know, we're still in my sort of cultural wheelhouse a little They're bit. They're all romance languages. They're I all got romance this. languages, right. <laughs> but you know, I, I am not Indian from India. Like I mm -hmm. don't know what that culture really is. I've only seen it from afar. Uh, and so for me to presume to know what a person would sound like is probably going to be informed by some stereotypes and characterizations that may not be accurate or necessarily flattering. So I have to be very careful there. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, you are responsible for the whole book. So you can't say, I'm not going to read this character, you know. Yeah. All right. So moving off process then for a moment. Yeah. Time for the dreaded AI question. So yeah. you, you have acted, directed, written, and narrated. Mm -hmm. Which of these is most vulnerable to AI? Narration. Yeah. They it's, can just copy your voice. It's the low-hanging fruit. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's the easiest. Um, voice clones are out there. Uh, you know, we know this. Uh, face cloning is harder. You know, we're talking about a lot more information. Uh, but yeah, uh, voices out there. Stephen Fry. You'd, you'd recently. have some recourse, of course, if they if they like took your voice exactly. Yes. Uh, yes. You know. Yeah. I mean, the good thing to know for all actors out there is that you own your likeness. Mm -hmm. You own your face. You own your voice. Mm -hmm. Somebody can't just take it. And we know this because I can't just take out an ad with George Clooney's face on it and say, you know, he's now promoting my product. You can't do that. He owns his face. So you own your voice. You own your face. They How can't... could you prove the voice thing? That seems. Uh... Well, you ask an interesting to... question. Uh, it's, you know, sometimes it's obvious uh, when somebody has a particularly recognizable voice. Uh, but, but even but, then, I mean, what's the, like, the burden of legal proof? Like there must be, is there right. some sort of yeah, code I, that can yeah, sort I, of yeah, like, I don't know. identify like a fingerprint? I, I wonder, a voice? Yeah, I wonder if you can like match a voice print, probably. Yeah, yeah maybe you, you know. can. And, you know, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know how it works exactly. But you're not wrong. I mean, it's, it's an easy place to, you know, you could take your voice tweak it a little bit yeah like take christopher walken or somebody who everybody kind of like right. rec like you hear that voice and you immediately right. perk up like oh my god it's right. christopher walken but you right. could tweak it slightly maybe right. and then wasn't there an incident recently where so tom hanks's brother 
who I guess sounds a Does lot sound like, like him. Oh my I, gosh. I, I, yeah, I think this is ringing a bell. And so Tom Hanks's brother was doing like voiceover campaigns, and everybody's thought it was Tom Hanks. Uh-huh. Uh, and well, then, I hope Tom just let him have it. I mean, for God's sake, he's got I, enough. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> I think something went down there though, where he's like, "Could you please stop?" Because everybody really, it's, oh I, come on. I, look, I don't. I look. I can't speak out of turn, so I don't know. <laughs> um, but no, you're not wrong. Like, it's it's easy to clone a voice. Yeah. It's easy to then sort of tweak it a little bit so that it's not quite you. Yeah, but it's you enough, right? Right. They, so, like I the, know. the consumer, the yeah. listener, is still responding as though, yeah, whatever's getting that reaction. And I do want uh, two things. I want to say about this is one that AI, you know, is is very powerful and it's it's gotten better and it's only going to get better. But it still can't do what a human does in terms of uh, performance. Mm-hmm. I will say though that there are places where AI voices can serve a purpose. Uh, and for one, one example is like a backlist title that nobody was ever going to put into audio. Just get it out there. Yeah, yeah. just get it out there. Like it would yeah. be too expensive. It would take too long. But you're now making it available, mm-hmm. right, for people who aren't able to read, can't read for whatever reason, right? So that's reasonable. You know, it'd be interesting to see, like, just getting back to the earlier thing and sort of layering the AI bit over it. In terms of the appropriation of gender, mm-hmm. ethnicity, all that, like how would they do it? Someone's sort of turning a knob on like how right. Chinese are going to make this person sound right. versus, or right. how womanish are we going to make you Right. Know. I mean, look, with all these things, the technology is only going to improve, right? Mm-hmm. And so the AI will eventually get to the point where it can read the book, scan the book, make some decisions about this line, this line, this line. You know, it's going to get better. We know this. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's there yet. Uh, and I do think that, you know, I've been talking about this a lot, as you can imagine. Um, there's a there's a space, there's an area in which the human element exists, which the computer can never quite replicate. I don't know what it is, but it's that missing thing. And I do feel like you know when it's an actual person. I yeah. hope you're right. I, I, sometimes yeah. I start to doubt whether that's true, but I, I hope you're right. Because as you say, it's getting better and better. It's so, getting I mean, better. It, the, the only thing that, of that that's You have to be very me. discerning as a consumer to know the difference at, at some point. But I point think we too. can feel it. And one of the ways I liken it, uh, things I liken it to is um, if you walk into a, 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 a Renaissance church, right, there's a feeling that happens in that room, right? There's, there's the, mm. the history of it. You feel the people in it. If you stand in front of an oil painting, you feel that the painter was there too. And it's different than looking at a photograph a poster, of the painting, yeah, right? Or yeah. a poster. Or it's different than walking onto a film set of the Renaissance Church. There's something there that we cannot replicate. The one thing that kind of scares me in this is that, you know, if audiences become accustomed to this other thing, maybe they won't know what they're missing. Mm. So I think about my kids, as I said, they're 11 and 8, you know, they're going to be growing up with all kinds of stuff, which they're going to think like, this is fine. Mm-hmm. You know, the same way that like, have you ever seen like old, old animation, the hand-drawn cells and that kind of stuff right, and it has right. a feeling to it. Yeah. And then the cartoons that like I grew up on and probably you grew up on, they had a different look to them, but yeah. we were okay with it. Yeah, we didn't need. Yeah, in we fact, it, it became right. almost like metaphorical. Like your your right. your mind filled in the rest. You didn't, and it right. was almost better. Like right, the, it's like radio is the right. theater of the mind. Your right. mind can do it better than anything right. external can do. So that's the only part that scares me is that maybe audiences will just become accustomed to it and think like, oh, this is fine, you know. Mm. And so that's a danger point. But I do think that were they then to be presented with the oil painting or the church or the human voice, they'd go, whoa, yeah. there's a whole new level yeah. here. I love that analogy i mean i we took our kids to 
the last two Junes, we've done France and Italy. So mm. we walked into a number of those big cathedrals right. where you just you walk in and yeah. you're. Yeah, I love what you were saying there. It's exactly right. You walk in like, whoa. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm speaking to a guy who studied Latin <laughs> in the Vatican, my God. So right. you know the feeling. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's an incredible thing. It kind of overtakes you. It does. It's like it, it does make yeah. you gasp a little bit. And I'm and, not uh, a, a religious man, uh, but I do have to say that there are times when I walk into churches and I think maybe there is a God. <laughs> you yeah. know, like if this can exist, like, wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um. All right. Well, thank, that, that's a very thoughtful response to the AI issue because I've, I've been thinking so much about it across industry. You know, it's I, well, and as, as you as say, a writer. Audio, yeah, yeah. I you know, which partly makes me feel good about this. My most recent book is narrative nonfiction, where right. I'm dredging things out of sure. archives and things. Well, that's something AI cannot do. But no. you know, to write a crime thriller, you can plug in five of the best and say, sure. do it like this. And then boom, out comes a right. crime thriller or, or something. So right. that's an episode of Law and Order. Like, you know, right. It's, it's like, exactly. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's uh, it's a technology that we're going to have to figure out how to use. Uh, you know, every technology presents uh, amazing possibilities and probably some pitfalls and, and scary aspects to it. We just have to figure out how to use it properly so that it doesn't destroy not only the art form, but people's livelihoods. Yeah, and as usual, of course, the technology is far ahead of the ethics right. that we need, and right. the, and the law around you know around main, controlling it. Right. Um, so, in terms of before we get to the lightning round, I want to ask what's next for you. And one of these things that I just recently learned as we were walking around the the Sirius XM studios here and looking at Howard Stern's spots and things like that, you're going to be teaching and. Yeah. Your friend and mine, Scott Brick, is also teaching some audiobook narration. That's right. What's, uh, what's up for you next? Well, universities, I guess, are starting to have courses on narration, uh, mm -hmm. which is amazing. I think Yale has them. Scott teaches at UCLA. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, he's been doing it for years. I was invited to teach at my alma mater, which is Wesleyan University. Uh, and so it's just a, a seminar. Uh, it's a few meetings with a select group of students. Uh, and it's in the writing department, which I thought was interesting. It's not a theater elective. Yeah. Um, and so we're going to be talking about, you know, what does narration do? Do you agree with that designation there, writing as opposed to theater? Yeah, no, I think it's important because I think, you know, narration is very much a part of the writing process now and the publishing process. Mm -hmm. uh, and as a little side note, so I went to Wesleyan. I had a mentor by the name of Paul Horgan. Uh, he was a three-time Pulitzer Prize-winning guy, uh, and he one day said to me, you should read your stuff aloud. And I went back to my dorm and read my, you know, <laughs> my pathetic creative writing aloud. And I was like, wow, it's really bad. Because <laughs> as soon as I heard it, you know, I was like, this is terrible. Uh, but it, it, it never, I don't know. I feel like I whenever, I think this is why writers have stopped doing readings at book. Now it's right. like in conversation. If right. you read it. Nobody sounds good. It always sounds it either sounds too pretentious. Or I know. Sounds... Well, now they're bringing the uh, the narrators to join them at the events, right? Oh, yeah. that's a great idea. Yeah, that's uh, that's what I'm doing with uh, Paul Harding uh, on a, at a couple of events. We're going to be down at the Charleston Literary Festival, and then we're doing uh, All Books Considered. And they sort of brought me in. To... Oh, he must be thrilled. He's like, Thank God, <laughs> I don't God, have to do the writing. Eduardo's yeah. here. <laughs> uh, anyway, no, yeah. So teaching at Wesleyan is adding a new wrinkle to my career, which was yeah. completely unexpected and quite wonderful. So is that going to be when, when does that begin? And it's, is it a, it's begun. It's like a semester. Oh, it's begun. Yes, yeah, this semester. Uh, I don't know if it's going to continue. Uh, there's no plans for it at the moment. Uh, I think it's a bit of a test case for them to see, like, you yeah. know, how do the students take to it? So, what do you, what, what do you do in a class? Well, I talk about uh, finding your voice. 
Uh, and, you know, we talked about the human element versus the artificial element. I think one of the things that distinguishes the human is that you do have a unique, uh, you know, sort of thumbprint or fingerprint or voice print, whatever it is. And so who are you and how do you bring something more to this text, right? We have to honor the text. We have to be faithful to it. We can't just like make stuff up a whole cloth, but we want to add something to it. So who are you on top of this? And I think it's very important for students these days to really find another avenue to find their voices. Mm Mm-hmm. And so we're literally finding their voices. Do you ever do like the, uh, I'm trying to think of that movie. I think it was Warren, Bugsy, the movie Bugsy oh, yeah. with Warren Beatty. Yeah. And he's trying to, to you know, ingratiate himself with sort of the higher class folks. So he is doing elocution, elocution. things, right? right. Like, right. like the rain in Spain. Right. Do you right. do that sort of thing? Do people need to work on how to pronounce no. words? And No. I think, honestly, that there's, I, there's, I'm glad you asked this because I feel like there's a slight misconception with narration in that people are like, oh, you need a good voice, mm-hmm. right? Okay, to a degree. But at the same time, it's like saying you have to be traditionally attractive in order to be in movies. Not true, right? Mm-hmm. You just need to be a good actor. You can mm-hmm. be. There's all kinds of roles in movies, right? Look at Steve Buscemi. He actually got Steve a leading Buscemi. role. My right. God, in Boardwalk Empire, right. he's the leading man. Right. He must have like right. looked in the mirror and thought, <laughs> holy cow, I'm the leading man. I never thought this would happen. Oh, Steve. Uh, I've known Steve for a long time. Um, he, by the way, I love that show, and he's amazing. Yeah. Totally amazing. Um, no, but it's the same idea, right? It's like, okay, having a good voice is probably, it helps. It's not a bad thing, but it's not the end-all, be-all. Yeah. What we want in our voices is authenticity and truth. We want somebody who's telling us a real story from their perspective. And so that's really where I land on it. It's like you don't have to look. You've got a great voice, you know, uh, and you would probably do very well in narration. uh, But only if you. No way. I feel like there's so much more to it because people have asked me that. I'm like, it has to be like Scott Brick or Eduardo Ballerini. Because it's like there's an art to it. I don't don't understand the art. And I was about to say, you've got a great voice. You could probably you've got a good start, but only if you can bring. You know, the other side of it. Um, so I forgot the question already. The martini's kicking in now. So. <laughs> oh, we're like the, just like a day in the life of the course there that you're teaching oh, yeah, there at Westland. So, yeah. No, it's really about finding your voice. It's about, yeah. it's about truth. Yeah. It's about – and I do think that a lot of these students, you know, particularly Wesleyan students – are very smart, very proactive. A lot of them are going to be creating things, right? And so yeah. they're going to be writers. They're going to be journalists. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the reality is that they may have to record their works, especially in the journalism side. That's happening a lot. Mm. And so if that's the case, I, I, I want to help them find their authentic voice and be comfortable reading their stuff aloud. I think, you know, it's going to be a great course for people, whether or not they want to pursue this as a career or not. Exactly. It's like you go to law school because it teaches you how to think. Mm-hmm. And, and and it's a great education for anyone who's not even going to be a lawyer. Like oh, yeah. that's a great education. And what what people have the benefit of learning in your class here, yeah. they'll apply in no matter what they do because you're telling a story. Yeah. Uh, everything in your career is yeah. about telling the story, whether you're yeah. telling your board of directors or your Absolutely. employee or your boss. Yeah. That's exactly what I hope to get a- across. Is uh, this isn't about becoming a professional narrator necessarily. If you want to do that, great. You know, mm-hmm. but it's really about. Trusting your voice, finding your voice, and uh, you know another avenue to understanding who you are. Yeah, I love it. Oh, that's great. I wish, yeah. I want to come audit. Yes, <laughs> I'm going to audit that class. Yeah. All right, on to the lightning round. Oh boy, your favorite book as a kid. By the way, we have to get to the olives before we. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, I'm yeah, going to right. fish I, one I, out yeah, of there. I'm just going to fish one out with my fingers. You know. All right, favorite book is good. Uh, I had several, but you know, one that always comes to mind is I had this um, book of Greek mythology. And it was a little paperback. And on the cover was uh, Icarus, 
Flying Towards the Sun. And uh, I was kind of obsessed with this book. I used to copy out the drawing on the front, and I used to do these like genealogy trees of all the gods. Mm. And that book was sort of next to my, my bed for years. So I think that would be my favorite. That is, I remember that that myth or whatever that sort of it's almost like an aesop fable right yeah. it's like yeah. the um yeah. too close to the sun yeah book or books you're reading now so one of the I, i'll tell you this one of the downsides of being a professional narrator is that uh because you're reading all the time you're not reading for your own pleasure um so the books i'm reading now are books that i've been asked to narrate and i'm sort of prepping them mm-hmm. so there's a, a lisa scottolini thriller uh that's coming up next uh i'm rereading this other eden uh by paul harding uh, I did get asked to do an evening of, uh, of John Donne poems, uh, and so I'm reading uh, a bunch of Donne's works. Mm-hmm. Um, what else is there? Uh, a writer named Robert McCammon. I don't know if you know who that is, but he writes these historical uh, fiction pieces. They're 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 really entertaining. So that's kind of what I'm reading now. But it's always uh, it's work related. It, it, it kind of is. Do you ever? I mean, vacation? Do you get to go pick up a? Yeah, I um, I want to do more of that, and. Uh, you know, we don't have a lot of time to get into it, but, you know, I do want to do more writing, more on-screen acting, more teaching so mm-hmm. that it frees up the studio time so that I can actually read some books again. Yeah. Well, I guess a good problem to have, though, that you can't get away from the work reading. It is. You're, it you're, is. Uh, yeah, it's in a good high problem. demand. Yeah. I mean, really, so listeners know, I mean, it, it's really, you know, Scott Brick has been around and Eduardo and Scott are sort of the two leading guys. When you go to the Audi Awards, these are the guys up there every year nominated and, and we're collecting all the hardware bringing home the hardware <laughs> exactly yeah all right next question in the lightning round best stage production you've ever seen uh there was a great production of uh o'neill's desire under the elms on broadway years ago with um uh pablo schreiber who's Liev schreiber's brother and uh carla mm-hmm. gugino uh, and some others, I can't remember. I can't remember who directed either. But I remember being just so struck by the whole production, the whole set. I, when I think of uh, Eugene O'Neill, I think of these very sort of stark, kind of like you know, grim houses and bars and stuff. And this was this. Ve- I mean, it was very you know uh, thematic, and it has a lot of light and shadows. But I remember it was big, mm-hmm. and it, it felt very different from O'Neill for me somehow. That it was like big. It took it onto a big scale. Uh, and I love that production. Stay yeah. with me. All right, number one. I didn't even know Liev Schreiber had a brother. I, I was obsessed with a show that he was on in like Showtime or oh, something. Oh yeah, um, we played some. He was like a fixer. He was like an right. LA fixer. Yeah. No, he has a brother who's uh, fairly successful in his own right. Oh, that's yeah. great. Yeah. Okay. The fictional character you'd most like to play, either on stage or audiobook or on film. Um, I've always maybe this is going back to my my Vatican days, but I've always wanted to play a priest. I don't know why. I just think there's something very deep to be mined with the life of a priest. Like who goes into that it, that world mm-hmm. that feels that calling so strongly uh, that they, they want to pursue that. Uh, I did play a – I had a small role in a film that nobody saw where I was a priest, so that doesn't count. Uh, but I did get to put on the sort of the collar for a day or two. I mean, generally when I see priests in film, it's either like a horror movie, like The Exorcist, <laughs> right. and you've got to go deal with a demon, or it's right. like Richard Chamberlain, right, and like right, he right. was like, but but I also want to have sex, and you right, know. right. Uh, <laughs> no, I just I think there's a there's a there's a part out there for a, a priest. I don't know why. I've, I, maybe again, it goes back to my my Roman Vatican days, but uh, I've always wanted to to play a priest in like a yeah. meaty role of a priest. Oh, great. Well. I, you know what? Hopefully, someone out there is writing the screenplay Please. or the or whatever, and you can uh, right. do it. 
the favorite place in Rome or Milan or anywhere in Italy okay. that most Americans might not know about? Yeah, there, there are a few. And this is always a tricky question because now you're telling people about something that you'd like to keep right. hidden. <laughs> right. It's like my favorite place to write exactly. in private. The best cafe is... And like, no, it's not like, you know, I, I don't expect tens of thousands of people to flood this place. So there's a place... Well, it's not like we're the Today Show. It's so only, yeah, you know, yeah, a, yeah. a few thousand people you, here. You, about just, you just never know. Um, so there's a place in Milan uh, called uh, Ibagni Misteriosi, which means the mysterious baths. Uh, baths in that sort of Roman sense of baths, like a pool. Uh, and it's a beautiful place. And there's a theater next to it, Il Teatro Franco Parenti, where they do all these amazing shows. And it's this little oasis in the middle of, of Milano. If you're ever there, I highly recommend it. It's gorgeous. It's so elegant. It's so refined. You can sit by this beautiful pool and have an espresso, or you can have a glass of champagne. Mm. Uh, and it's like a community pool, but... High-class European style. Oh, that's great. So, Bagni Misterios. If you're ever in Milano, check it out. That sounds great. You know, so we... It's funny. I feel like Milan, Milano is is sort of like fourth of the cities that you would go to. I mean, people go to Florence, Rome, Venice. Yeah. And then maybe yeah. there. I, I don't I get should it. it. Should it not be in that order? No, I get it. I mean, Milano, poor city, was so bombed out in World War II that a lot of it was kind of destroyed. It's obviously this great business fashion, cultural center. Mm-hmm. But I can see why it's not the, the great tourist destination in that, you know, look, it has some amazing places. It's got these incredible museums. It's got the Duomo. But it's not Florence. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not Venice. It's not Rome. It doesn't have the breadth of cultural artifacts that those places do. So I mm-hmm. get that. And you know what? That's fine. Like, mm-hmm. leave right. Milano to us. It's got the, or, or, that's where the, in, the insiders go. Right. All right. Most embarrassing moment you've ever had <laughs> on stage. Okay. So... Oh, boy. Um, there have been a few. But so when I was first starting out, and we're talking sort of mid-90s, I did a, I, I don't know if you'd call it a staged reading, because it was a little more than that. It was of uh, Agamemnon, Aeschylus. And uh, so it, it, it was weird, because we, it was blocked, and we were in togas and like the whole thing, but we had scripts in hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess it was probably one of those like backers productions, you know, they were looking for the actual money. So we get out on the stage the first night, and um, and we're doing our thing. We're reading, we're going around, you know. And this woman decides suddenly to. She gets very animated, and she has this big speech, and she throws her arms up, and her script goes flying <laughs> into the air. And her script had not been stapled together, so the pages are just oh, like no. fluttering down on me and the audience and everything. And I'm in a toga and I'm like this skinny kid. Suddenly I'm like gathering pages on the stage and trying to like collate them back together. (laughs) Meanwhile, this woman has a panic attack. And so she starts laughing over on the side. She's like, ha, 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 ha. I'm like, what the fuck is happening? So I'm gathering pages, you know, in my toga, trying to hand them back to her while she's panicking. I don't, I I think I blacked out at that point because I don't remember what happened next. But I remember if you've ever been on stage and ever had that moment of sheer panic where the world just stops and everything goes silent and you're not breathing anymore and, and you just want to die on the spot, <laughs> that was it. <laughs> oh, that's great. You painted the picture so well there. And you, and you got into voice character, did yeah. the, the yeah. panic attack I laugh. I did the laugh, yeah. Oh, my right. God. Last question for Eduardo. One piece of advice for the listeners. Wow, this is a tricky one. Um, you know, there's a tendency now for people to speed up their listening. 
and I think they and I get why, mm-hmm. right? They're like, you know what? I just I just want to get through this. You know, it's like it's a thriller. I just want to I want to find out who did it. You know, like let, let me. So mm-hmm. they listen at one point two five or one point five or two or whatever. I do think they're kind of cheating themselves a little bit. And yeah. I, I my one piece of advice, and you know, take it for what it's worth, is to listen at normal speed, because there is a performer there who is doing something which is intended to be listened to this way. Like you wouldn't just kind of, maybe you do, I don't know, fast forward through yeah. the movie. You know what I mean? You wouldn't just like play the movie at two It's times. amazing you say this because my wife and I were just having this conversation two days ago. About it was over this weekend. Listening. Because we, we, do, we both do more audio. I, I didn't even do podcasts for a long time. And um, just a couple, a few years ago I started. And so she does a lot. She consumes a lot of news right. over podcasts. Right. But she also does a lot of audiobooks. So she, you know, she's always got her hands busy or sure. she's driving in time in the car, things like that. So there's a lot of audio happening for both of us. And she will do the podcast for news consumption at 1.25 or 1.5. Right. But her audiobook's only at one. Oh, good. It is, it's meant for pleasure. Like good. It's, it's a piece of art. It's I not, and, that. and the way it comes across at one is how it's supposed to be. Yeah. You know, it's not like you're just consuming. Yeah information you're having an experience yeah i appreciate that um you know i've heard people say like you know I, I speed it up and it's like all right you you can do that but i do think you're you're robbing yourself yeah and it's a bit like uh you know when you're driving on a highway and you're going 65 and then you speed up to 75 you you probably only get there like three minutes faster you know when mm-hmm. you actually time it out and so it's kind of like that it's like how much time are you really saving? Yeah. Uh, you can do the math, but I do think you're robbing yourself of part of the experience. Yeah. Well, that's a, it's a metaphor for life as well. Great advice. Eduardo, thank you so thank much. You. What a pleasure. Thank you. I'm going to fish out another olive. <laughs> if you have been enjoying the audio of Dedicated, now we have more for you. We are now videoing our episodes of Dedicated. So go to YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Rumble, and the SiriusXM app. And you can see a video of our episodes of Dedicated with our awesome guests. Thank you. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy.